Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. We need to be prepared for the future. I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream. You must ready. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. Eventually, I know it's going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hi, I'm Fred Hooper, and this is Pacific Prepared. It's a show all about natural disasters, climate change, and traditional knowledge, and how these things are all connected. And you'll hear that through stories from right across the Pacific. Each week, we work with local reporters. They're on the ground, letting us know what's happening in this space and what people want to hear about. Coming up on today's program, storytelling. There's a million different articles on the internet that tell you how to tell a story, but you don't need them. And you never have needed them because people in the Pacific have been using storytelling for a long time before the internet was around. Also, why the relocation of villages and communities isn't quite as easy as it sounds. They are also losing their connection to that land, their connection to the ancestors who have inhabited that land, you know, centuries, hundreds of years ago. Uh, and uh, they've uh, created that connection, but also that cultural affiliation towards the land eh? uh, and the environment surrounding that. And staying with relocation, there's a new report that's been looking into relocation of people in the Pacific. But it's also clear that staying put is by far the preferred option. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. What's your plan? Are you ready to leave your home? Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific Prepared. You probably already know this. If you want to get a message across to someone, one of the best ways to do that is to use a story. Get that person thinking about what you're talking about and give them some connection with it. Storytelling in the Pacific has been around, well, forever. And it's a way that communities pass on information to the next generation of family and friends. PNG-based reporter Diane Wachetzi spoke about storytelling and how it's used to pass on traditional knowledge. Storytelling is universal and is as ancient as humankind. Before there was writing, there was storytelling. It occurs in every culture and from every age. It exists and existed to entertain, to inform, and to promulgate cultural traditions and values. The tradition of storytelling can take many forms, including epic poems, chants, rhymes, songs, and more. Not all of these stories are historically accurate or even true. It can include myths, legends, fables, religion, prayers, proverbs, and instructions. Storytelling was intended to preserve the tribe's history and educate the young. 
storytelling by our ancestors has been passed down from generation to generation. The stories of how an island was created or where our tribe comes from are some examples. These stories mark great events in a tribe's history, either a celebration or one of disaster as a way of education. Maria Didigula hails from the Takoa clan of the Hiyaula tribe in the Milimbe province. She tells us the story told to her by her father and his father before him, a legend about a mimitua or land spirit. She reiterates the legend as her grandchildren listen. The story bases around a group of hunters who set out to hunt for the village's meal at their sacred hunting grounds with the youths of the clan in tow. Sacred hunting grounds and the laws of the land were well respected back in the day. The young men of the village create disharmony and anger their elders and the spirits of the land. Maria tells the story. Parikero was a sacred hunting ground for the local people, blessed with a vast selection of animals to hunt from. Locals always find hunting is land with pride. But one day, as a hunting party set on the unusual hunting trip, but this time, the young boys from the village decided to accompany the best hunters on the trip. As the party came towards the sacred hunting ground, boys were, were told to remain silent while hunting. It's a sign of respect to the Mimitua or Ed Spirit. Landowners of the land, they walk for miles and miles. As the hunt began, the young boys started getting tired. They started to play and giggle and laugh. This angered the elders in the hunting group. The boys were scolded to remain silent, but they did not listen. After hours of walking, the hunting party returned to the village as the sun was setting without catching anything for the villagers. They were disappointed and sad, and the elders knew they had angry the earth spirit or the mimi to us. That night, as the whole village slept, Heavy rain, thunder, lightning, the ground shook with all its might. The local people huddled up in fear, for they knew the spirit were angry and were cursing the villagers for their disobedient behavior. The legend says that the Mimito, a snake called Gabadi, in the local dialect, left the area after the people's disobedient behavior as a lesser. It's the snake uprooted itself and moved the ground around his sleeping place, shook and disappeared into a huge hole by the ocean. Today, the hole still remains as a sign of the snake's movement. In modern times, this story depicts a natural occurring phenomenon called a sinkhole. Sinkholes are formed when the land surface above collapses or sinks into the cavities, or when surface material is carried down into the voids. While this story has been told for generations, serving as a warning, it is only now that we are learning that 
what our forefathers thought was the work of evil spirits and angry mimitors or the workings of mother nature herself technology and education are breaking down these myths and debunking our beliefs in deities of long ago however the importance of this storytelling still remains it is important to pass the stories or legends onto the next generations as it keeps our culture alive it maintain a balance and teach us lessons that are useful in our daily lives we can also take the stories and educate our young about our customs these stories depict our tribe's history they are tales of our tribe's hardship and why we have laws surrounding our land water and villages Nigel is 16 and while he says he believes in spirits and folklore these stories are part of his culture and tradition a time when everything was determined by spirits and forces of nature and their effects on our lives in ancient times if the stories never happened how would they become what legends the stories were happened before so The stories then were passed down from generations to generations later the stories became legends. So now is kids these days don't believe the story. They just think it's legends because it's there uh, for a different reason. These stories teaches us lessons that can be used in our, our daily lives. Such as being humble, respectful, sharing and what being able to not repeat the mistakes of what of the past uh, the new generation tend to forget about the teachings of our ancestors and this is really sad to see that our culture is slowly what fading and becoming more westernized PNG-based Pacific Prepared reporter Diane Mackenzie. I'm Fred Hooper, and you're listening to Pacific Prepared. People's lives have been affected by disaster. Know what to do. Know what to do. Know what to do. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. See, all the signs are coming, so we have to prepare. Be prepared. Pacific Prepared. We hear about relocation. People in the Pacific needing to look for new places to live. Most of it is related to climate change and the huge impact this has on homes and communities. An effect of relocation is how this changes the dynamic of a community or village. Relocation is possible of course. People can move to a new place. But what about the things that can't be moved? Like the connection to land or how a river influences a village, certain aspects of a place that form how a community sees themselves. Josiah Nonga is a freelance reporter based in Fiji and he has this story. There is a notable shift in environmental strategies to consider traditional practices. This was stated by the director of the Fiji Museum, Mr. Cyprian Nemani. Mr. Nemani says this was noted 
in rigorous international and local conferences in recent years. The impacts of climate change continue to alarm small island nations, affecting traditions and culture. Nemani adds that traditional knowledge and practices are vital in mitigating climate change and can sustain one's traditional identity. Uh, in Fiji, we have a lot of um, uh, communities that have gone through this process and now uh, I think there are more than 20 or 30 communities that are in the pipeline awaiting relocation uh, to higher ground uh, because they are very susceptible to uh, sea level rise. Eh? Um, and it's really a sad thing because... Uh, um, uh, one of the key things besides uh, them losing their, uh, you know, their cultural spaces, they are also losing their connection to that land, their connection to the ancestors who have inhabited that land, you know, centuries, hundreds of years ago, uh, and uh, they've uh, create that connection, but also their cultural affiliation towards the land eh? uh, and the environment surrounding that. So with their movement, um, there's a lot of implications. Uh, and right now, uh, say for example, the movement of our people from the village of Wudindongaloa uh, in Vanuelevo uh, uh, to higher ground, um, although it's a, a good thing, uh, it was seen as a, uh, an achievement by um, our government and, of course, those involved in relocating these communities to higher ground. But in fact, it has a lot of implications and repercussions as well. Social, mostly sociocultural. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know, with, with the relocation of our people, they've lost contact with their fishing ground. Okay, they have this connection with the fishing ground. They are totems. A lot of them have clear totems that connect them, not their, their land, their villages, to the sea. Okay. There's also that visible, uh, you know, the, the use of their time uh, in terms of them. Uh, for example, if they were still located along, uh, uh, I mean, habituating along the coastal area, then normal day-to-day -day, um, activity would encompass fishing, foraging, and so forth. These, uh, with, with the movement of, uh, of communities into, in the island, there, there is a, uh, also a culture shock because they, 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 the, the sort of relationship with the sea has severed and there's a clear-cut disconnect in that. So how they have to adapt, that's a big, big undertaking for them as well. Eh? Trying to mold uh, the community so that they can all follow one direction and their leader has to be really strong basically to, to lead them in, in such a way. Eh? So um, this is implications in the movement on uh, socio-economic, socio-cultural. Uh, you know, there was a, a report uh, done by some of our social organizations here in Fiji on uh, the impact of the relocation and some of them have seen there's an increase in uh, um, theft, uh, downtime in terms of uh, men not going uh, fishing or going to um, uh, their plantations. More time is spent watching television because there's a clear cut, clear reception uh, in the new relocated area they moved to. So, you know, there's this change. And in terms of division of labor, uh, you know, there more women are being burdened with work at home while men continue with leisure activities and so forth. So there's this clear-cut, uh, um, uh, not the clear-cut demarcation, basically a, um, a um, 
sort of bias, eh? prejudice, um, uh, task uh, delineation for, for men and women in the villages. Eh? So there's a lot of implications emanating out of it. Eh? Just to highlight, we, the museum, through its archaeology section, who's also hosting this Ilapita conference, mm. have been working with uh, these archaeologists, international archaeologists and researchers from overseas. Some of them are present here. And they've been uh, carrying out excavations eh, around the country, not only identifying Ilapita shards, those clear, those um, really, really uh, unique, uh, intricate designs that are on pottery shards, but also working using this research as a way to identify how our forefathers have addressed climate change. Because climate change is not new. It is something that they had experienced, our forefathers had experienced in the past. How did they adapt to it? How did they um, uh, respond to it? So through archaeology, it's very fascinating to, to see the results. And one of the key things is that um, using archaeology as a mechanism to understand um, traditional habitation, traditional ways of survival, and traditional way of adaptation by our communities. Eh? He says the youth also need to be equipped with traditional practices and knowledge in order to survive in the coming years. Uh, it's very important that um, there's a multi-sectoral and multi-audience stakeholders that are involved in the whole process of uh, uh, mitigating, looking at traditional knowledge as a way of uh, resolving perhaps climatic issues and climatic problems we are facing eh, here. And of course, the museum plays a very important role in the museum, but our cultural institutions. Eh? Um, you know, for example, just the, the National Archives, there's a whole colossal of records that are there, which can be used as primary sources that can facilitate further research on this. Eh? And this is where we can also get in our traditional elders. We also, in the program that uh, was funded by Australia, we had uh, organized a Talano session uh, and mostly involving our women. Because more than often, our women are not uh, celebrated. Eh? So in this Talano session, the women, what we had done was basically got our women to here at USP, three of our women to talk about how uh, indigenous women, Itauke women, share their traditional knowledge about um, traditional fishing and conservation measures that our forefathers had, how they can uh, repopulate the ocean eh, given the high rate of pollution amongst others, eh? how we can address that using uh, traditional knowledge. And it was fascinating. So these are other mechanisms and ways in which uh, through Talano and Dialogue, the museum is advocating uh, and also talking about these real core issues, especially climate change, which is very much impacting us and affecting us. freelance reporter based in Fiji, Josiana Nunga, with that story. In just a moment, we'll keep that conversation going about relocation in the Pacific. We need to be prepared for the future. Helping you stay safe. We have built a seawall two times, but it did no good. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strikes. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. 
The ocean is often part of life in the Pacific. It's seen as a critical part of life in the Pacific. It's how some communities identify themselves. As well as being a big part of life, it's also becoming a risk. Rising sea levels are impacting on thousands of lives. It's forcing people into making impossible decisions. A new report has been taking a look into displacement as a result of climate change and exactly how much land is available for any needed relocations. But it also makes the point that relocation is not the first priority. Making sure that people don't need to move in the first place is. Director of the report, Scott Leckie, spoke with Jan Kahoot from the ABC's Pacific Beat program. So we've, you know, we've just released our latest report on the relationship between land availability and solving, preventing, resolving uh, climate displacement. And we found kind of obviously that there's more than enough land on planet Earth to resettle every single person who's ever going to be displaced by climate change. So the bottom line is there is no shortage of land. What is lacking is the political will to make that land accessible to people that need it. And this is particularly the case in the Pacific where land resources are obviously because of the, the small land mass that most of the island nations have and the low elevation that most island nations have, particularly the actual ones, there's not a lot of excess land that would be safe in the long term for people to um, move to if they're living along coastlines, which are being er eroded and simply um, disappearing because of rising sea level. So, you know, in the first instance, we would encourage every country in the Pacific and, and globally, but let's start with the Pacific, to, you know, have its own plan in place to diagnose the scale of the problem. So where are people living in communities that are most threatened with rising sea levels and are there options available to protect them right now? Um, you know, we found in countries like the Maldives and obviously, you know, wealthier countries like the Netherlands, um, even in Nigeria, a whole range of other countries, they are starting to build floating villages on the outskirts of major cities as one adaptation strategy that can enable people to stay more or less in place. And something like that you know, it's not ideal, um, but it does allow people perhaps to stay much longer in the immediate proximity of where they're living now, at least to be prepared for it. You know, raising the, the level of houses using stilts and things of that nature, um, reinforcing coastlines in the right way, because it's very easy to do that in the wrong way. Um, you know, obviously planting mangroves and things of that nature, and even raising the ground. You know, we really feel that we need to collectively take the perspective now that let's aim for zero displacement and safety for all in every single Pacific Island nation and start with that as our premise. And if people want to move, if people voluntarily feel it's the only option, then certainly they should be allowed to and pathways should be made available to them to do that. But if they don't want to move, they should be given the absolute prioritization by the international community and by countries in the region to enable them to stay as long as they possibly can in the area where they would like to stay. And, you know, we think that with the right policies, the right laws, the right commitment, displacement can definitely be reduced if the resources um, and goodwill are made available to governments in that region. Okay. And so proactive planning is crucial now. If we were to ignore the problem or if some people were really wanting to stay, what kind of effects could we see in places like the Pacific? What we've found over time is that, yes, some people want to move. Some people have given up on their current location. 
And sometimes you can do that domestically. There's, there's over, I think, 40 villages in Fiji, which have already uh, started thinking about moving one or two out, already has moved. Um, but they have a lot of land that's elevated and, and mountainous and they can, you know, have no shortage of it. But if you're in, uh, you know, Lao Lagoon in the Solomons or Antoine Java Atoll in the Solomons or in the Carter Island, PNG, or living in Funafuti and Tuvalu, et cetera, um, local options just simply aren't there. And so that's why somebody needs to make the choice. Are we going to reinforce and bolster our defenses and enable people to live here forever? or at least for a, a century more, um, or are we going to put our cards into the let's go now um, category? So these are these are these sort of existential challenges facing governments of the Pacific. And so it seems to be like the issue here that we're, we're not fast enough in having a united Pacific voice to know what they want as a displacement policy. How can we speed things up? What What is the next step? I mean, you know, the Pacific really is, they're doing a lot. So, you know, I wouldn't want to get the impression at all that they're not doing anything, but is to um, really unify more, have a, have a series of common demands that all the countries share with as much backing by other countries um, as well. You know, the more powerful, larger economic powerhouse countries of the world and do everything possible. And you see that they already are to, um, you know, act in absolutely the best of faith that they are going to do what the population as a whole wishes, which in most cases does still remain uh, the right to stay if, if it's at all physically possible. And if they don't want to, opening up migration pathways. And let's, we can start first with migration and immigration pathways between and among Pacific Island nations. And being very open about it, saying, yes, you're welcome. If you would like to come here, you have no other option. Creating a visa status, for instance, that's a climate change displaced person status. So not just a refugee status or a economic migrant status, but where somebody can actually claim that they are displaced because of climate change. That would help. Um, committing to not, um, you know, in legal terms, it's called refooling someone. So sending someone back, deporting them if they showed up on your shores because of climate change reasons. And that's already been decided by the UN Human Rights Committee to be illegal to deport somebody because of, uh, if they're trying to stay on your territory because of climate change reasons. Scott Leckie, founder of the NGO Displacement Solutions, speaking there with reporter Jan Kahoot from ABC's Pacific Beat program. The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. You are listening to Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared is supported by the Pacific Media Assistance Scheme with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of PACMAS or the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific including Radio New Zealand Pacific, NBC Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Capital FM 107 Vanuatu, FBC Fiji, Samoa National Radio 2AP, SIBC Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, and TBC Tonga. If you're working on something that's related directly to this program, let us know so that we can tell everybody about it. Maybe you've got a story idea, a personal experience to share, a topic to cover, or someone that you think we should meet. 
The easiest way to get in touch is to search for Pacific Prepared and then scroll down to the Connect With Us section. You can also listen back to the program. Just type Pacific Prepared into your search engine and you'll find us. Part of the aim of this program is to start conversations about disasters. What would you do and how will you prepare? We're trying to help you make the next disaster easier for you and your family. My name's Fred Hooper. Please share any information you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.